Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to study together. We thank for your character of love, your blessings. We pray for your wisdom and your presence with us today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And I want to say hi to our new friends at uh, Walla Walla. I was in Walla Walla last week speaking at the uh, Village Chapel, which is their community church. Tremendous turnout, over 800 people there for the meetings uh, for each one. And a really positive response from everybody. We uh, shipped out 500 of each of our DVDs uh, to be there to give away. And we had an anonymous donor uh, provide funds to to give about 500 of our Could It Be The Simples away. And uh, and all of them were gone. Everything was gone before, before the weekend was over, so... It went really well. I received this email online from an online listener this week. It says, I recently downloaded the Remedy app and have been reading it alongside my other Bibles during my quiet time. So many times, turning to your paraphrase is like using, pardon the illustration, nasal spray, in that it often clears the congestion of some tricky passages. <laughs> like I said, I have only had it for a few days, but thus far, it's been a joy. Thank you and, and the team at Common Reason for making this resource available, and may God use it to further his kingdom. And then I received this as an email this week. Thank you so much for your podcast. My wife, sister-in-law, and best friend have had their lives tr- impacted tremendously. Please use this offering for whatever ministry needs it most. Uh, blessings. And then an update from our uh, our uh, new uh, hub and outreach in Canada. This is from Gary Jones. Some of you remember Gary. He was here for a while, and now he's up there working for us in Canada. He says, we have uh, started receiving email requests for DVDs from across Canada, and we have purchased envelopes and tape gun for shipping DVDs. We have set up an account with Canada Post that gives us a 5% discount. We also started a Bible study class with non-Adventists. We currently have five to seven people coming so far. Uh, one person in the class has already said that the DVDs and the book Could It Be This Simple has changed his way of thinking and has given him back a God that he loves, not fears. Another guy comes from a Mormon and Baptist background. He also likes Could It Be This Simple book and has requested a couple to give to his friends. We are working on starting uh, other study class in Nova Scotia, plus helping the ones uh, others have started. I received an email from someone in Alberta yesterday asking for five DVDs for their class, and I know of one other class in British Columbia as well. Do you think Common Reason uh, would uh, could maybe build a page on the Common Reason website that could be set up for people that would like to start a home or a uh, church study groups but do not know where to start and how to plan a class? I would be willing to work with some others from Come and Reason family in Tennessee to discuss what and how to put together a study group and starter page. P.S., you said some people from the church would not like the Come and Reason approach to sharing the gospel. Well, it's starting to happen. (laughs) So that was his email. All right, so we're moving into a new quarterly today, and it's uh, the book of Matthew, and the title for lesson one is The Son of David. And the memory verse is from Matthew one twenty one, and it says, he will save his people from their sins. When you hear that memory verse, we've heard it how many times? I don't think you can ever grow up in Christianity and not hear this many, many times. What does it mean, though? And as you process the meaning, you know the question, what law lens are you looking through? What law lens are you looking through? Are you looking through the human imposed law contrast, contrast, construct, a system of rules that is commonly taught? Well, one of our class members here from our class emailed me a, uh, a paragraph from a sermon she heard at one of, one of the churches here in town a couple of weeks ago. See what you think about this. Jesus died on Calvary 
Here's a question. What did it do for God? It is called, in theological terms, the objective side of the atonement. What did it do for God? God was involved. The Bible says God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. So what did it do for God? There was a legal issue. Man had broken the law. The punishment was death. How is it God can preserve his law, preserve his righteousness, preserve his integrity, and take care of man at the same time? The cross has an objective side. What God did, what God accomplished, it's called by theologians the forensic side, the forensic meaning law. There was a legal issue, and God solved it with the cross. We can read in Romans 3, 26, it identifies the struggle that God had regarding the salvation of man. It says in verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how can God be just and justify the sinner at the same time? That's the side called the objective side. What what did the cross do for God? Well, it settled the legal problem. It gave man the opportunity to be right with him. What do you think? What law lens is this coming through? This is this is thinking through a lens that God's government is no better than a sinful human government. That God's law is no different than a sinful human law. A system of rules imposed that requires infliction of punishment. And it presents, in my view, the infection to Christianity is this entire penal theory of salvation. The whole world is drinking the wine that intoxicates it on a distorted view of God that incites fear and it keeps people in religious systems that have no power to free people's hearts and minds. But we know God's law is not imposed, but it's the actual design protocols upon which life is built. And we understand this, we realize the memory verse means exactly what it says, that Jesus came to restore us to wholeness, to heal us, to cleanse us, to fix what is broken in us, to cure us from sinfulness. You know, the... It's nice to remember that the root from saved is like sad, sad, you know, salvation. And, and we use sad to heal things. So the, the, the Greek word save, sozo. You have copy of my notes, don't you? <laughs> the very next thing, the Greek word save means, it's from the it's a word sozo, and it means to heal, to restore, to make whole. So if you're injured, if you have been poisoned, if you've been snake bitten, and you go to the emergency room and you say to the doctor, doctor, please save me. What are you asking him for? Are you asking for legal pardon? For a forensic accounting? Because that's what they're telling you. This is why there's no power in Christianity. Because we are, we are actually injured in character, heart, and mind. Okay? We're sick. And what do we do when we go to these types of things? We, we, we go to the, the emergency room for what? For a legal accounting. It doesn't work. But from a personal perspective, that, that type of a, um, that type of a mentality used to make sense to me. Because of my mindset. I had a, I, I too believe that the problem was a legal one. And once I, once I came to the understanding that it's, it's, it's a linchpin, that you, when you understand that God's law does not function like human laws, then, then that can no longer solve the problem. And so, it's, it's 180 degrees back. And the way to get your mind from that is just recognizing the word law can also mean laws of health. Laws of physics, law of gravity, okay, design law. It's a, it's a legitimate use of the word law. Law is involved, but it's design law, not a system of rules in, without inherent consequence. The word salvation, 
Now that's the root word salve. Like, you can see, S-A-L-V, salvation, salve, salvo, um, salvage. Okay? Taking something that's broken and restoring it to usefulness. There's nothing in the Bible regarding our salvation that actually is judicial. There are judicial metaphors, but metaphors, think there's, think this through. A metaphor is only metaphor if what? If it has a cosmic reality to which it points. If there is no reality directly tied to the metaphor, then it becomes fantasy, not metaphor. Does that make sense to everyone? So the legal legal model, legal language in some places where judges and stuff are these are metaphor. But what's the reality to which they point? The pastor in the uh, in the paragraph that I quoted cited Romans chapter three to support a forensic view. I'm going to quote to you one of probably my most frequently used Ellen White quotes. I use it a lot because it distills into one short paragraph really the, 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 the crust of it all. But notice how she uses Romans 3. She uses Romans 3, the same exact passage in this paragraph. And notice she'll set it up, and then she finishes up with Romans 3. This is the Desire of Ages, page 762. And I'm going to take some pauses to comment on as we go through. The law requires, and you guys know this quote, what's the law require? According to the pastor, what's the law require? Legal accounting. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. Why does the law require that? It's how we're designed. Exactly. For the same reason that the law of respiration requires you breathe. Now, that's not a mystery. It just makes perfect sense. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, the law requires we breathe. I get that. The law requires righteousness because that's how life is constructed. Okay. He... Um, but man has, but this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ coming to earth as a man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. Pause. What did, what, what did this author say Christ did? Is the development of a perfect character subjective or objective? Do you understand the difference between subjective and objective? It's objective. Subjective is when you have an impression about it, when you're influenced, you have an impression, a feeling about it. Objective is actually something that's been accomplished, something that's measurable, tangible. Okay? So when he developed a perfect character, is that subjective or objective? See, the, the forensic people will say the objective thing he did was he paid the penalty. That was, that was an illegal accomplishment. The subjective thing he did is to reveal his character of love that influences you to love and that subjectively influences you to love him. That's what they'll say. They miss the entire point. The objective thing he did is he actually fixed humanity. That's a much, much, much more profound object of, objective accomplishment than this legal payment thing. Keep going. Um, and uh, develop, uh, he, uh, let's see. But Christ coming to earth as man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. Now notice, he's offering what is a free gift? What he Which is his perfect character, right? To, and, and, and where is the gift... And how is the gift being offered in what way? To, for what purpose? How, how is it that you partake of it? To all who will receive it. 
This is not what legal model says. The legal model says he offers a perfect payment to all who will accept it. And if you accept it in the legal model, how are you accepting his payment traditionally? How does that happen? You claim the payment in a legal kind of an accounting way and you have this idea in your mind that his blood payment has been made to your record in heaven and you now have a legal accounting and and so forth. This is how we typically know. How would you accept his perfect character? To all who will receive it. How do you receive his perfect character? When he knocks, open the door. Knocks at the door. If you open the door, I'll come in and sup with him. It's actually internal. It's the Holy Spirit working to, to regenerate. Okay? His life stands for the life of men. Thus, they have remission of sins that are past. I'm going to pause. It's right in the middle of the sentence. We have remission of sins that are past. What do you think? What's the forensic model say? Remission of sins that are passed through the perfect payment made in your behalf. That's what they say. This is what she says. Through the forbearance of God. What? What? How can you have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance? What does forbearance mean? Grace. Grace. How does that work? Think about a child that was sick. Fever, diarrhea, vomiting. And now you're introducing a remedy. The child is getting well. The fevers are past. The vomiting is past. Do you hold them accountable for their past vomiting and diarrhea? Or do you have forbearance? You're gracious about that. You don't hold them. You don't rub their face in it. You don't remind them of it. It is past. More than this, more than remission of sins that are past with the forbearance of God, something more is happening. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. What's the Peter say? We become what? Partakers of what? Divine nature. This is internal. This is real. This is not accounted somewhere. It says, imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Notice what Christ is doing. He objectively achieved a perfect character that we could not achieve, and now through the work of the Holy Spirit, he is imparting and imbuing that into us, so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. It's a, it, the Bible doesn't say, it's no longer that I am accounted, but Christ is accounted in my place. No, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Thus, when I hear after all, uh, uh, so of goodly fabric, spiritual strength and beauty, we are built up Christ-like, Christ lives in us, we're transformed, and now notice what? Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. How does she use this just and justifier? In a legal accounting way? Or in a transformational, regenerational, recreating and holiness way? That Christ came and perfected humanity, developed a perfect character, and now he reproduces that in us. This is what justice looks like. So, if you see your, your child drowning, is it right, is it just to pull them out and to administer CPR? Is it right and just to do so? My battery's dying. Okay. So what do you think is the source of this degree of... Well, well first answer the question, we're going to answer yours. I want to really bring this point home. Is it right and just to pull your child out and do CPR? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Based on what law? 
What makes that right and just? Love. Law of love and? Laws of health. Okay. Both laws. This is design law. This is the right action to take because that's the only way to resist. So man fell into sin. We are dead in trespass and sin. The right and just action for God is to take action to restore humankind back to how life is built. That's what's just. That's what's right. And God reveals it. Now your question. It befuddles me what is the source of this degree of resistance to this turn of the message. For me, when I heard it, I was awash in gratefulness. I was so thrilled that something that had never made sense to me all of a sudden was switched. And now it all made sense and was so much more significant. What he did was so much more significant than a legal transaction. And I, just, I wonder why anybody wouldn't react that way. My experience dealing with people is there's not a single motive that keeps people stuck in that view. There's multiple different reasons. One reason is some people actually have a difficult time grasping and understanding more than just a rules-oriented way of thinking. There's the maturity level. Have you ever met people who can't abstract well? They're very concrete in the way they think. Their mind can't take simile and metaphor and extrapolate. Even the, and It's not an educational thing. Look at the um, spiritual leaders in Christ's day, the Supreme Court justices of the Sanhedrin, when he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, they didn't abstract well. They were very concrete, and it offended them, and they were angry at him for him to suggest such a thing. They couldn't abstract well. When he said, I'm the bread of heaven, they, they didn't abstract well. Okay, So some people don't abstract well. They get very concrete, and they think through very narrow little lenses. That's one reason. I've experienced others who have spent a lifetime promoting the other view from pulpits, in writings, in books, and their, their name is attached, and their reputation is attached to that view. And I think their pride and ego won't let them, because if we're right, then what they've been promoting isn't really the, the gospel message, and they would have to step back and say, you know what, I didn't understand it. This is a growing process, and I need to grow in my understanding. Some, I've met people who've done that, who really have taken that view, and they've really stepped forward and, and admitted that they didn't used to teach us, but this is, the, this is the way it needs to be taught. Others oppose it viciously. Um, I think others find a security, a security, it's a false security, but it's a security in this idea that, well, you know what? Um, all my sins, past, present, and future, were put on Christ at the cross 2,000 years ago. He knew my sins before I ever lived, before I ever committed them. They were put on him. They were paid in him. I accept the payment. Uh, you know, he's, he's predestined me to salvation. I just accepted that payment. You can't, you can't have victory in your life. You're going to sin forever. So just go out and continue to live your life like you've always done. Don't look for transformation. Don't look for maturation. Don't look for san- sanctification. Just, just accept the justification, the justifying power of the blood that pays your penalty. And you're saved and you have security to live your Wicked life, while you claim the legal payment that saves you. There's a lot. Some in, 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 in evangelical circles, it's once saved, always saved. It was a legal justification. I accept that payment. It's done forever. Now nothing can cause me to be lost. In Adventist circles, it is more the, that I just, of course I'm going to stumble and fall, but all I have to do is just get on my knees and accept the payment again. And as soon as I do that, then I'm, I'm legally justified again. I'm good. And I think the reason people gravitate to that false security is because they lived under a false oppression, feeling that their salvation is based on their performance. And it's not. Any more than a sick patient's wellness is based on their fever and their cough. It's not. But it's based on partaking of the remedy, which eventually resolves those things. In John uh, 16, 12 to 15, Jesus is giving his final address to his disciples before he goes. 
He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will take what is mine and make it known to you. This is a profound passage. It's hugely deep with with significance. It cuts right through the traditional penal model. Um, Do you notice the Spirit is coming, and the Spirit is not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears. Who do you think the Spirit is listening to? Yes. Whose representative is the Spirit on earth? He's the representative of who? Primarily Jesus' representative on earth. So when you read other passages with certain Bible authors that say things like, Jesus is in heaven pleading his blood in your behalf. You ever read stuff like this? And you think of it traditionally through the false legal model, you're thinking he's pleading to his Father. No! He's pleading his blood in your behalf. And who is listening to his pleadings? The Spirit. And who is the Spirit communicating those pleadings to? Yes, the Father doesn't need to be convinced. The angels in heaven no longer need to be convinced of the trustworthiness of Christ. Who does need to be convinced of the trustworthiness of Christ? We do. And so when Jesus is pleading, he's pleading to you and me, and the Spirit takes what he hears and makes it known to us. And then when we're one to trust, he knocks at the door of our heart, and we open the heart, the Spirit takes what Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Yeah, it's profound. Yes. I think that at the end of the lesson, it says that really struck me. It says that the, the restoration of character is supernatural. You can't really do it yourself. That's right. It is supernatural. Wonderful. And the lesson also points out that humans look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart, the heart right? And, and, and what is the basis of law construct that focus on outward appearance? It's all about the rules, right? The behaviors, the deeds, the good. It's, it's that imperial stuff. But the, the heart is looking at what's actually functioning. How does it operate? What's the condition of the being? This is design stuff. This is like a doctor who is looking at the actual MRIs and ultrasounds, looking at the deep recesses to find what's wrong. And we get that. We go like David. Father, search me and see the wicked way in me. Find what's wrong. And create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Fix what's broken. And the thief on the cross is a really interesting example of that because that occurred in an extremely <laughs> short period of time. At first it said that both thieves were, were making fun of Jesus and so on. But the one thief watched Jesus' behavior, became convinced of who he was and what he, could, he was accomplishing, and ter- gave his heart to God all in a few hours' time. Yeah, Absolutely. Sunday's lesson starts to look at the genealogy of Christ and asks us to read a few, a few Bible verses as we do this. And asks us to read John 1, 1 through 3, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. What do we learn about Jesus from this passage? He was involved in creation. He was involved in creation. Involved in creation? Okay, he was the member of the Godhead through which all things were made. We will learn more than that, though. In the beginning was? Was there a time before the beginning? <laughs> no. It, it, so, so w- was there a time Jesus did not exist? 
This is important. Was there anything made that didn't come through Jesus? What time, what type of being is being described in this passage? A creator. A, design, a God is being described in this paragraph. Yes, in this passage. Then who is Jesus? Jesus is God. God the Son. Exactly right. And, and this verse doesn't give us all the insight, but if you put these together with your larger knowledge of Scripture, why do you think Jesus was the member that God had through whom all things were made, rather than one of the other members who could have easily done it as well? What would be a reason that Jesus was the member through which all things were made? Because he's the one that Lucifer had alleged equality with. Yep. Lucifer never claimed equality with, with the Father. He claimed equality with Christ. And so Christ demonstrates by action. Hey, you're a created being. You can't make anything. Look at it. And he creates. And you see that he's, they're not equal. Remember, they, Peter talks about how Lucifer and Jesus, or he uses the same name for Jesus and Lucifer, when he calls Jesus the bright morning star, the Greek phosphorus, translated into Latin as Lucifer. And Lucifer means light bearer. And so they, they had this, this similarity, but they weren't really similar. Jesus is fully God. Lucifer is a created being. So we see that in, in the fact that all things are made by him. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at the, many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things through his powerful word. After, after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So what do we learn about Jesus from this passage? What do you think this, this means, appointed heir of all things? Context is important here. When was he appointed heir of all things? I think it's in the context of saving fallen humanity. When he finished Adam's job. Yep, when he finished Adam's job. What Adam failed to do, Christ completed. Saving fallen man, revealing the truth about God, bringing humanity back to its righteousness and perfection. God sends his son and appoints him heir of all things on this planet. Some use the passage to suggest that Jesus isn't fully God because he was appointed heir of all things. But he was appointed heir as Adam's replacement, the second Adam. Why is there God the Father? I mean, like, we always think of the Father ahead of a son. There wouldn't have been the son if there hadn't been the Father. Wait, wait, why do you say that? Well, because you always think of, when you, when you think of the Father, God the Father, you think of him as above Christ. So you said there wouldn't be the son if there wasn't for the father. I'm talking about in our life. In other words, you couldn't have a son if you didn't have a father first. Okay. So the father-son descriptors can lead to one to believe that one was a, um, a prodigy, an, off, an offspring of the other. Right. It could lead one to think that. Right. Okay. Um, but then the scripture that we just read and others would refute that. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. There's not a time when Christ wasn't with God. He was with God from the beginning. By the way, anybody know how amoeba reproduce? An amoeba reproduce by... Now, once that happens, which is the original? Which is the father and which is the son? Interesting. Go ahead. 
uh, comment, Jesus is God from forever past, yet is this the first evidence to the angels that Jesus was Michael, but one not only like God, but was God? If you read in the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, the first chapter and Desire of Ages, um, it is finished. Uh, she describes in heaven how when L- Lucifer began his rebellion that and a- alleged equality with Christ, that there was a council and all the angels are called together and God uh, declared the right position of Christ as one always equal to the Father. The, the position of Christ had not changed, but it became necessary to state this position because allegations had been raised that had never been raised before. And then from that point forward, they went forward to carry out their plans to create the earth, and Christ was a member of the Godhead, which did the creation, revealing his creation creatorship to the angelic beings as well. Um, let's do a couple more of these quick, and then we'll get, we're going to come back to this angel question in just a minute. Um, I'm going to skip that one. Mark 12, 35-37. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking of the Holy Spirit, declares, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. How can he be his son? Remember this when he's speaking to the Pharisees? And of course, they couldn't answer him. And so the point of this, what do we learn? That Jesus is David's Lord. He is, he is David's God. He is David's creator. Fourth paragraph, it says, By coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal both God, both to men and to angels. He was the word of God, God's thought made audible. That's uh, Desire of Ages, page 19. What do you think about this idea of Jesus revealing God to angels? Notice, by coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal God both to men and to angels. How was he to reveal God? By doing what? By coming to dwell with us, he was to reveal God. Um, How many people have you known that said it's really hard to believe in God because they can't see him? And if they could be in heaven and see him, it would be a lot easier to believe in him. How many have, have, have heard that? What about then this idea that one of the goals for Jesus coming to earth was to reveal God to the angels who actually were in heaven and could see him, but Jesus was coming to earth as a human being in order so they could see God? Do you following the, the point here? Yeah. Did you ever think on earth that viewing Jesus on earth is a better view of God than what you could have had in heaven? Not till now. <laughs> Am I messing with your... Yeah. <laughs> Yes, think that through. This is what this is what's being said here, isn't it? That he came to reveal God. To well, let's let's see. Um, Jim, what I hear you saying is that this goes beyond just a declaration of some revelation. This is actually a parsing. A, a it, it's a definite divide between fantasy, the fantasy that you revealed earlier with the metaphor and the the actual reality that the metaphor refers to. So, what is a requirement? If Jesus is going to reveal God, what is an absolute requirement in order for Jesus to be able to do that? Think it through. It's not a a trick question, but it goes to this whole question about undermining undermining the divinity of Christ. In order to reveal God, he has to be God. Okay, it's just a straightforward thing. He can't reveal God. If he, if he is a lesser being who comes down here to reveal God, 
then what we, what we learn is that God is willing to sacrifice a lesser being to protect himself. We don't learn that God is willing to sacrifice himself for his beings. We don't learn that if Jesus isn't fully God. Yes? I think, is it true that the confusion became evident because Christ took on the, the body of an angel? The form, yes. And it was the same thing when he was on this earth. There was confusion that he was God because he had the body of a man. Yes, and so we can, we can help people get their mind around this. Some people have never considered this. Just remember 1 Timothy 6.16, it says God lives in unapproachable light. Unapproachable by whom? Think it through. Why? Unapproachable, because he's, because he's restrictive, because he's put up a, a boundary hedge, or because there's something in design law, in reality, how reality works, that makes it unapproachable. Okay, is God infinite? Yes or no? Are created beings infinite, or are they finite? So can a finite being enter in infin- into infinity? No. So he lives in unapproachable infinity, unapproachable light. Okay, it's unapproachable by any finite being. We can't enter into infinity. Even a, even a, a, a sinless angel cannot enter into infinity. It's beyond them, beyond their capacities, their abilities. They can't do it. They would they would fry, so to speak, if you will. But. God is love and he wants close intimacy with his creation. So if God wants close intimacy with his creation and a, and, and a finite beings can't enter into infinity, what will be necessary to get the closest connection? A member of infinity will have to leave infinity and enter linear time. And who was that member? Jesus, always, always the member who was the go-between, the bridge builder, the connecting link between the Godhead and his creation. So Jesus leaves infinity and enters into linear existence in the form of his creation and the form he took, according to scripture, and there's many scriptures support this, Exodus 3 and other places, was the form of an angel, an archangel, who has, whose voice is the voice that raises the dead. Because he has power, the keys of hell and the grave. And his voice will call the dead back to life, Christ himself said. And Thessalonians says it's the voice of the archangel who calls the dead back. This is Jesus. Yes. Well, I wanted to uh, just look over when you said Jesus tells us more about God than, than we could learn by being in heaven our, ourselves. Because he's interacting with us. We can see him in action. No, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't take us off. It is the angels in heaven are learning more about God by him being here then they could see him in heaven. So it's not, not just for our need. Yes, it's true that we can see him. But the point was that by becoming to dwell with us, Jesus was revealed God both to men and to angels. The angels were seeing more about God through his incarnation. That's the point. Okay. Well, and you know, I was relating it to even if, you, if we were there and could see him, we learn more here. But let me just read one that really touched my heart about um, Jesus showing us the Father in uh, John 13, um, at the Last Supper, it said, the, starting with verse 2, The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothes, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water in the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. And to me, that is, is so insightful. I, you know, we all know about Jesus wrapping a towel and washing the disciples' feet, but we forget that the verse before it says, he, had all, he realized that all power was now under, put under his control. And this is what he did with that power. So you've heard the statement, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. 
What did Jesus reveal when all power was given to him? Exactly, and this is what you consistently see. And even at the cross, not only just service, but would he ever exercise? I mean, most of us would say, okay, uh, we're not going to use power to exploit others and hurt others and dominate and, and, uh, and be corrupted by the power. But certainly if someone was trying to murder you, it would be okay to use the power to save yourself. I mean, certainly that's not a misuse of power, is it? You're not harming and you're just stopping them from killing you, right? To use your power that way. That would be that would be righteous and good, wouldn't it? Jesus didn't even use power. The point is, he was God was alleged not to be powerless, but to be powerful and abuser of power, a selfish user of power. That was the big big issue. Satan never accused God of being powerless. He accused him of being corrupted by power. And Christ reveals at the cross that he won't even use power to stop death from taking him. He won't use his power in that way. His power is always the power of love, which is always external, always giving. And if you look at the triune God, this is why, why God separated from Christ. Christ didn't derive, if you want to derive, he has his life, according to what, unborrowed, underived. Okay? There's no other source of life except it comes from the God in himself. But it's a triune Always constantly circling and giving. The Father cuts off Christ. Because if the Father doesn't separate, can Christ die? So, no, the Father is the source of life. If the Father stays connected, he's not going to die. The Father doesn't separate in order to inflict death upon Christ. He separates in order for Christ to finish his mission, which was to reveal the truth that, that he has all power. Christ still, if I want, I could call my father. 10,000 angels would come. I could do it right now. I won't do it. I don't use power this way. This is why in, in Revelation, you always see, every time you see the, the look in heaven, holy, holy, holy is the lamb who was slain. Holy, holy, holy. Perfect, righteous, holy. Why? Because the one who has all power has proven beyond doubt we are safe in the universe with him at the controls. We can trust him. The lies have been refuted. So, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 68. But the plan of redemption had yet a broader and deeper purpose than the salvation of man. It was not for this alone that Christ came to the earth. It was not merely that the inhabitants of this little world might regard the law of God as it should be regarded, but it was to vindicate the character of God before the universe. To this result of his great sacrifice, its influence upon the intelligences of other worlds, as well as upon man, the Savior looked forward when he, just before his crucifixion, he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all, not all men, the scripture, if it has men in your scripture, that's an added word, it's not in the Greek. I will draw all unto me, all intelligences. The act of Christ in dying for the salvation of man would not only make heaven accessible to men, but before all the universe would justify God and his son in their dealing with the rebellion of Satan, it would establish the perpetuity of the law of God and would reveal the nature and the results of sin. Look at what's happening here. It's huge. What's this mean, perpetuity of the law? Why is the law perpetual? What kind of law is it? It's designed because God is eternal and he has built life to operate upon the perpetual principles of love. It never ends. This is why 1 Corinthians 13, love never ends. It's perpetual. It's perpetual when you understand the law is the law of love. Here's another one. 
Desire of Ages 19 and 20. By coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal God both to men and to angels. He, he was the word of God, God's thoughts made audible. In his prayer to, for his disciples, he said, I have declared unto them thy name, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. Notice, my design law, my law of love, may be written upon the heart, that they may be restored back into unity with us. But not alone for his earth-born children was this revelation given. Our little world is the lesson book of the universe. Hopefully your mind's going. 1 Corinthians 4, 9, where Paul says, we are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. Or Colossians 1, 18 through 20, all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. Hopefully you're, you're having your Bible references pop into your head to validate these, these uh, positions. God's wonderful purpose of grace, the mystery of redeeming love, is the theme into which angels desire to look. And that's a quote from, from Peter. Angels desire long to look into these things. And it will be their study through endless ages. Both the redeemed and the unfallen beings will find in the cross of Christ their science and their song. Science, their, their understanding of how reality works, the facts of how reality works. Song, the passion and love of their heart, the joy of their soul. They will find both in the cross. Reality works this way and it touches and restores and, and moves the deepest emotions of the heart. Their science and their song. It will be seen that the glory shining in the face of Jesus is the glory of self-sacrificing love. In the light from Calvary, it will be seen that the law, the law of self-renouncing love is the law of life for earth and heaven, that the love which seeks not her own has its source in the heart of God. See, this is, this is design law stuff. There is no imperial, and the more we teach this imperial, legal, forensic view of God, the more we obstruct people from actually knowing him and coming back. That, that whole view is based on Satan's view of God's law and his allegations from the beginning. Remember in, in another place, Desire of Ages 761, I think, every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. This is Satan's view. I've got a couple more quotes in here. Why don't I move on? Because I think there's some more fun. So if you want to check the notes, there's several more quotes just like that from other places. Monday's lesson. It's important. The lesson emphasizing Jesus as a descendant of David. Jesus as a descendant of David. Why is this important? Why is it important to emphasize Jesus as a descendant of David? Two things that I can think of. One, it establishes his real humanity. He is actually a biological descendant of David. He actually partook of humanity. He, he didn't just appear in human form like he did as an angel. When he appeared as an angel, he wasn't an angel. He appeared as an angel. Uh, back when he spoke to Abraham, did he appear in the form of a human being? Yes, he did. Was he human at that time? He was not. He appeared in the form. This, he became human. He partook of humanity. That's one. And he partook of the descendant of David, meaning he was of the royal line. So in the theater, remember the little theater, the Old Testament system, he was the royal line to be the rightful ruler of Israel. And in the little theater, Israel represents human beings, the whole human race. So he becomes our king. Now, have you ever considered David... And his life, historically, I think, was real. It happened. But he was also a type of Jesus, a type of Christ. Do you ever consider that? Well, think it through with me. David was the least significant of his brotherhood. Jesus became not just human, but a slave, humbling himself all the way to the cross, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, right? Humbling him all the way down. He became the least significant. 
David was a shepherd whose flock was being attacked by a lion and who singly and alone defeated the lion. Jesus is our shepherd and his flock is being attacked by a roaring lion, Satan seeking who may devour, and Jesus singly and alone defeats the lion. David and his people were attacked by an army with a giant leading it. All the people were afraid. But David, trusting God, defeated the giant and cut off his head. The human race was attacked by an angel army with the father of lies, the giant of of liars, at its head. And Jesus left all power behind, became a lowly, weak human, and by trusting his father, defeated that giant, crushing the serpent's head. David broke with tradition and fed his men the showbread, applying design laws of love and health, and other love for his men and wanting them to be healthy and be, uh, have nutrition over arbitrary rules. Jesus broke with tradition and healed on the Sabbath, touched lepers, spoke to women, foreigners, prostitutes, tax collectors, refused to stone the woman caught in adultery, and instead applied the design law, the law of love and healing. David was pursued and harassed by his own government and attempts were made on his life, multiple attempts on his life. But he eventually became king. Jesus, as human, was pursued and harassed by his own government and multiple attempts were made on his life before they actually finally did end up crucifying and taking his life. But he destroyed death and arises to become king of kings. David fell into terrible sin as king and repented, and out of his repentance came forth from that terrible event wisdom, Solomon. Jesus became sin, though he knew no sin. And from that terrible experience came forth the true wisdom of God, God's perfect character of love restored into humanity. What do you think? Do you see a, a, a types of Christ in, in some of the history here? You can find this all through Scripture if you look for it. The Scripture is all about a revelation of God to us. Is there, there's a reason why the stories in Scripture are there. There's a lot more history over the thousands of years than were recorded there, but these stories are all there for a reason. He spoke to us in various times and places, said in Hebrews a moment ago, through the prophets and so forth. Now he speaks to us by his son. I mentioned one of... Uh, that one of the things David and Christ did is that they ignored arbitrary rules and applied design law. What do you think about the quote I'm going to read you right now out of uh, Four, uh, Spirit of Prophecy, page 22, sent to me by my sister in an email this week? The great sin of the Jews was their rejection of Christ. The great sin of the Christian world would be their rejection of the law of God, the foundation of his government in heaven and earth. What did you hear there? What's the great sin? The rejection of what? But, but it's clarified. The law of God, the foundation of his government in heaven and earth. What is his government founded on, built on, exists upon? How do you understand the law? Do you understand Adventists will take, in the forensic model, forensic Adventists will take this, and they'll distill it down to one little test. One little thing. What's the one little thing they distill it down to? 
arbitrary. Which day of week you go to church on. That's it. And do you understand most of them actually still promote the, the human imperial law construct? That God's test is, God's uh, Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience. God just decided that's the day he's going to make holy. He declared it to be. He legislated it such. Uh, there's no other reason for it other than God said so, and therefore you have to decide. You're going to obey God. You're going to obey. It's a test of your obedience. And we know the right day, and therefore we have the, 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 you know, the right law, and we're keeping that law, and God will kill you if you don't. And they are still promoting Satan's view of God's law. You remember the people who put Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago wanted him off by sunset, so they could keep the day. Okay? You can have the right day and still have the wrong law. That's a newsflash for a lot of Adventists. Because the right law is the law of love, and when you understand that, then the Sabbath is a sign. Think about signs. If I have the, the letters T-R-E-E, do I have a tree? Or do I have a symbolic representation of a tree? And if people didn't figure out the difference between the two, and they went out and started planting these block letters in their front yard hoping to get fruit off of them, <laughs> would there be a problem? That's what many people have done with God's signs. This is what many Adventists have done with the Sabbath and becomes a dead, dead day of, in, of, of enslavement each week, where each week we have the law, and it's a sign, and if we keep the sign, we're going to have fruit, spiritual fruit. But... It, it's not, it's not, it, it's presented in the arbitrary rules position rather than the design position. It's a sign. How is it a sign? Because you have to look back to when it was created and what was happening. And it was constructed. It was designed. It was built for a purpose in a time and a place. Truth was presented all week of Christ's creatorship and his design. If you look at how the world was created in perfect love and all the ecosystems and the law of love built into everything, like every breath you take, you can weigh carbon dioxide and the plants give auction back to you. This is, this whole creation reveals love. And on day seven, he says, I rest. No more power. Day one through six, we, we learn that God is powerful. Day seven, we reveal the character of the one who wields it. Truth presented in love, leaving people free. And thus the Sabbath was set up as a day of freedom to think. And if you don't have freedom, more freedom on Sabbath than any other day of the week, you're under the wrong law. It is a day of the greatest liberty, the greatest freedom. It is not a day of restriction. But when you operate under imperial law, the Sabbath becomes a, and this is what Christ said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We are not slaves to it. It is to serve us. It serves us by revealing in truth every week, God presents truth and love and leaves us free. There's no coercive pressure ever. Every week you remember that. You go, I'm free. Now I'm free to do anything. And you are. But Paul says you are free to, but not everything's expedient. Not everything's healthy. Not everything's wise, but you're still free to do it. You'll just destroy yourself if you do it, but you're free. Aren't we free to destroy ourselves? That's God's law. We have the freedom. We have the liberty. But because his law is how reality is built, when you deviate from that design, it's destructive to you to use that liberty in that way. And that's what the Sabbath is a sign of. How did the Sunday become a day of worship? It's a mark or a sign of something else. It was legislated. It was enacted. It wasn't built that way. It was just declared to be that way. Thus, it's a sign of design law. I mean, excuse me, impose law. It's a sign of imposed law. But people can worship on the Sunday and still have the seal of God. And people can worship on the Sabbath and still have the mark of the beast. Depends on which character they're developing and which law they're practicing and how they treat others.
Tuesday's lesson. It looks at uh, the, I, I think this is just an interesting story in the beginning. It says, let's look at the beginning of the Tuesdays. Women weren't even typically listed in the genealogies. So why would the woman named Tamar be listed here? Who was she to begin with? Tamar was a Canaanite woman who had been married sequentially to two of Judah's sons of Judah. Both of these sons died in wickedness while Tamar was childless. Her father-in-law Judah promised Tamar that he would give her a third son in marriage when the son got old enough, but this never happened. So what did Tamar do? She disguised herself as a prostitute and got together with none other than Judah, her father-in-law, who had no idea it was Tamar. Months later, when Tamar's pregnancy becomes evident, Judah, Judah took action to have the immoral Tamar put to death. This is all Bible. Yeah, she was to be burnt. Yep, put to death, yep. That is, until Tamar revealed to Judah that he was the father of her baby. What a cool story. (laughs) (laughs) So, why Tamar, if you look at the genealogy of Christ, there's three women in his genealogy listed specifically by Matthew. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Now, Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. Rahab was was a prostitute. And Ruth was a descendant of... How did the Moabites Moabites come into existence? Incest. Incest. Lot and his daughters had sex, and uh, Moab was the son of Lot and his daughter. And that's how Ruth came into existence. Okay? And these three women are included in the genealogy of Christ. I, I point out that the, those three aspects because those are the aspects that are most, uh, you know, headline-grabbing. Okay? They're the, you know, w- what you would see on the CNN news post. Okay? But I don't believe that is the reason why they're in the genealogy of Christ. I think there's one reason, above all others, they're in the genealogy of Christ, and listed specifically. They all three were non-descendants of Abraham. They were not Jewish. She was a Canaanite, one was a Moabitess, and the other was from um, Jericho. They were all non-descendants of Abraham. Yet they become part of the genealogy, the, the parentage, if you will, of Christ. What is, that, what is the, the purpose of including them there? Why would that be significant? What's the importance? It's really grafting in of the Gentiles if they were part of the salvation plan. Grafting in were part of, always were. You know, it's, this is why you get in, in Romans it says there's the original Adam and there's a second Adam. Adam isn't simply the father of the Jews. Adam is the father of all humanity. Okay, so it's the entire. For God so loved the Jews that He sent His only begotten Son. No, for God so loved the world. The entire world, the entire human race. And I'm going to tell you, one of the things the arbitrary law construct does is it divides. We have division. We have division in all classes, caste, social, uh, uh, denominational, everything. Because we have an arbitrary law construct, we parse out what this verse means, what that rule is, this day, that day, this form of baptism, that form of baptism. We parse it all out because we're licking under, we've got to do it the right way, have the right rules. Do you know, when you come back to design law, it's unifying. There is not an argument among religious groups of, of whether gravity works in their territory or or the laws of respiration work or or so forth. The, the arguments don't exist. When you come back to natural law and you actually see how things work, it unifies. It brings us together. 
And that's what Christ is. He's the universe. All things come under one head, even Jesus Christ. And in the end, there's going to be two groups and two groups only. Those who are like Christ in character operate and design law stuff. And that beastly system in all the systems of the world are described, all the nations of the world described as what? Beasts. And how do the nations of the world operate? What kind of law? Look, just look at what America's doing. What are we doing to, to North Korea? What are we doing to Iraq? What are we doing to any country we don't like? What do we do? We sanction them. And what do sanctions mean? They can neither buy nor sell. Save they get our mark. They get our approval. This is how all beastly systems work. Coercive pressure. Coercive force. Okay? And this is the difference. That's what happens with arbitrary law. And this is what's going to happen in the end. be two groups. Those who are practicing truth, love, freedom. And leave everyone free to make up their mind. Because you don't have to tell somebody. You don't have to coerce somebody to stop smoking. You don't have to coerce somebody to brush their teeth. If they don't do it, they will pay a price. And that is what God is looking for, a people who can come back to live in harmony with his design and present the truth about him in the setting of this great conflict over his nature and character and free people from what I see, a very dark, distorted view of God where people actually spend more time fearing God who is trying to save them than sin which is destroying them. And much of Christian theology, because they fear God who's trying to save them, because they get this distorted view, much of Christian doctrine functionally works to protect people from God or hide them from him rather than reconcile them to him. That's what it does. Look at it functionally, what it's doing. We don't have time to go through a lot of examples, but you understand that. Think that through. It's very profound. The truth is that God has been, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are our creator who built this universe to operate in harmony with your character of love who is perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ, who had all power but didn't think power was, was something to be grasped but humbled himself into the form of a servant. And when power was given to him, he used it to heal, to, to, to minister, to give, and never exercise power selfishly. And we know that you are for us, Father, for our, our well-being, for our salvation, for our eternal healing. We ask that your spirit be poured out, taking all that Christ has achieved in our behalf and reproduce it in us. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ was in me. We pray in your holy name. Amen.